0: Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast. This week we're going to do a parent interview and the reason for that is that we're holding off our listeners questions episode because we've got a very special episode in mind. What we're going to try and do is to gather up the voices of children and young people and let's hear what they have to say about As we come to the anniversary of lockdowns and we're one year into it, I was just really conscious that a lot of people who were speaking on media and in the public narrative where people like myself or teachers or union representatives or politicians or parents. But we haven't heard an awful lot from young people. And so what we've decided to do is to gather up a collection of young people's voices to see how the last year has impacted on them and maybe how they could feedback to us as parents how well we've done, maybe a, a, a yearly report on what we did well, and maybe what are the stuff we could work on to improve for the coming months. So, that's a really special listeners' questions episode or listeners' voices episode, uh, In hopefully, that we'll have ready for you next week. But uh, this has been a big week. We've had the re- phase reopening of schools, we've had some of the smaller classes up until second class, and some of the sixth years returning to school, which I hope has been, if it's affected your house, I hope it's been a positive experience. I certainly know from my own experience my two who are, who are back are delighted to be back amongst their friends and yes they're starving when they get home and they're uh, drained from all the social stimulation but it's been a really good experience for us this week to to have some of them back at school and hopefully that will continue and i think it's been a little bit easier to stay in the four to seven maybe the pressures of the one two three and eight nine ten have been a little bit eased as we see some of the the green shoots of things returning to normal but I hope you're all doing well and that your families are all keeping well. But just to mention one thing about this week's episode, there are two incidences throughout this episode where there might be words used that wouldn't be suitable for little ears. And we just wanted to point that out. Uh, I won't hold you any longer and I'll let you get on to this week's episode. Anyway.
1: On to today. It gives me great pleasure to introduce my guest this week to the Asking for a Parent podcast. As soon as this lady begins to speak, she's instantly recognizable because of her hybrid Irish-American accent, but also because she's one of the well-known voices on Irish radio. Today's guest was born in Dublin and grew up in Chicago until returning to Ireland in her mid-teens. She presents a radio show on 2FM and lives in Dublin with her husband and two sons, Sam and Ted. Although I only recently got to chat to my guest on her radio show a few weeks ago, I've been aware of her for some time. My association with this week's guest is very much associated with her honesty and clarity, which she speaks about real life issues. I hope she won't mind me saying, but I've always admired her contributions to the public narrative around the pressures of body image, mental health pressures, and of course, her courageous account of living with a diagnosis of cancer. When some well-known figures begin to talk about these topics as, that are close to my heart. I often feel anxious that in some ways they won't do the topic justice. This is not the case with this week's guest. Her authenticity, honesty and integrity stands out from the crowd and for that reason it is an absolute pleasure to welcome her as a guest on this week's episode of the Asking for a podcast. It is of course RT 2FM presenter, author and broadcaster Louise McSherry Louise, how are you?
2: Jeez, that introduction. I was nearly in tears. Thank you very much. That's so kind. I'm very well, thank you. I have childcare, so I'm very well.
1: (laughs) How has it been? Obviously, we're approaching, to give listeners context, we're approaching the anniversary of 12th of March 2020 lockdown. Uh, We've had 12 months of this shit show, excuse my language, (laughs) but how has it been for you? How have you been managing it all?
2: Now, when I look at it, I would say it's been fine, but it was really difficult at the beginning, you know, when we didn't have childcare for the kids um, and when everything was new uh, and so worrisome. You know, I was really worried about how particularly my older son was going to respond to everything. He's super social. I found it very hard. He found it very hard. It was very hard for all of us. (laughs) But, you know, he was also at a particularly difficult age. So now things are so much easier, um, partially because, of course, we have childcare, but also because he's a year older. Um, And that year between three and four is a huge year. I have learned in terms of, you know, just even being able to be slightly reasonable. So yeah, overall I'd say it's been fine. We're very lucky. We both have jobs and we have had childcare for the bulk of it. And um, but at the beginning it was incredibly hard. And I never stop thinking about the people who have not had support or childcare or, you know, anything to help them with their children throughout, because it is parents who I think about a lot. Because obviously that's the situation that I'm in. You know, I think we've all been under immense pressure because you're not just worrying about your own things or like the challenges of just kind of the, the endless feeling of all of it. But you're also worried about the impact that it's having on your child and, you know, whether that will last or whether you should be worried or then maybe you shouldn't be worried and then you're worrying about worrying. So I think it's been really difficult for loads of people, but I've been very lucky within it.
1: Yeah, I think we've said it a few times on the podcast, it's kind of been the most difficult year to be a parent, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and we've said that, you know, where COVID-19, as in the virus is is vulnerable populations, are the elderly and underlying conditions. The lockdown vulnerable population are children, you know, from the Mm -hmm. point of view of missing out on all those important parts. I mean, when you talk about that three to four age group and the introduction of some degree of reasonableness and you know there's also an awareness that comes with that as well so they're more yeah. acutely aware of the absence of friendships and hobbies yeah. and and you make a really good point because I think the more sociable children have actually suffered more yeah mm-hmm. it, it, when when I see young people it's the ones who were heavily involved in sports and outreach and linked it in with lots of communities and had lots of tribes that actually are finding it much more difficult the, the children who are a little bit more pre-covidly isolated have kind of been able to manage a little bit better it seems very unfair that the more social children have almost had more imposition in that way
2: yeah i have friends who have kids who who love being at home and that's their personality they like to be at home they like to be with mom and dad they like to be cozy and like i'm not saying that those children haven't had their own struggles within the context of all this but my son Never wants to be home, like never. That is the last place he wants to be. Ever since he was able to talk, he was out, out, out. You know, that was all he ever wanted to say. And he loves being with other children, and it doesn't matter what age they are. Like, you know, my my husband had him in the park on Saturday while I was at work, and apparently he was walking around the playground, going, "Anybody want to be friends with me?" <laughs> like, he's super outgoing, and he just wants a group to be with. He doesn't care how old they are, or what game they're playing. He'll play any game. So it was really hard at first and it was hard because I didn't know how much to explain to him. You know, if it was only going to be a brief thing, which I foolishly thought it was at the start, you know, I didn't want to bring in too much kind of big world thinking or serious stuff in. Now, obviously, I did as time went on. But yeah, he is a kid who wants to be out. He wants to go somewhere. That's another thing he asks for all the time. He misses his grandparents. He just misses life. And I think that's one of the things that I said to my husband recently is that, you know, sometimes if he does lose it or have a tantrum or whatever, you know, first of all, obviously that's normal. But second of all, we have to remember that he's having his own struggle with all of this that he probably can't really verbalize to us. So we have days where we're fed up and annoyed and sick of everything and we have to kind of make allowances for him to have those days as well you know yeah I think
1: that's that's a lovely image of him in the park I know there's a kind of a, a sadness <laughs> to if anyone want to play but it, it's it's lovely to see that he has still got the social appetite because
2: mm.
1: where children who who love life will really miss it you know because that's essentially there's been an element of existing as opposed to living for some time but what has happened in in many cases is and i've seen it children who now fear life do you know what i mean so uh, and that anxiety being a a fear of life so when when you see your lad out in the park saying i do want to play it's (laughs) there's something lovely about that his appetite for socialness hasn't changed and I, I, i think i see a lot of adults with that i was only talking about this recently about you know, it's very hard to shoot the breeze at the moment, you know, because yeah. we don't have nights out that we can talk about. We've no holiday plans. We've no, there's no currency for conversation. So yeah. something like a chat almost becomes something you have to prepare for. Like, what will I talk mm. about? And yeah. and it can be something that used to be enjoyed becomes a little bit like work. And I think it's easy to slip into avoidance of that and just go, I won't mm. talk to someone or I won't call or I won't, you know, and, as I was talking to someone, you know, when the phone is ringing, you're kind of looking, going, "What do they want now? You know, or yeah. why are they ringing me?" You know. Oh,
2: if my phone <laughs> rang, I think I would have a heart attack. Like, I wouldn't know what to do. I definitely <laughs> wouldn't answer it. My God, no. I find voice notes are a nice bridge between the phone call and real life. Like my friends and I would send each other voice notes fairly regularly, and I like that because there's less pressure to have an immediate response. <laughs> you can kind of compose yourself. And I have friends, some friends who I say like they'll send me a little podcast. You might get ten minutes of like you know, rambling, but if there's a comfort to it. Um, but yeah, phone call, not for me. No way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: um, but hopefully now, as I say, with vaccines on the horizon mm. and everything else, we will be getting back to shaking hands and hugging and mm. having a pint and doing all those things that, that have become so absent from our lives for the last 12 months. So interestingly, I was trying to read up a little bit about your own upbringing, Louise. And mm. uh, w- w- in the podcast, we often talk about that, our own experience of being parented is the only template we have for becoming parents. And mm-hmm. many of the, the research that we would look at says that that influences it, whether good or or bad. So we either say, I'm going to do it exactly like they did, or I'm going to do it exactly differently. And it almost shapes our expectations or our value system around mm-hmm. parenting. And, and I know you've spoken a lot about things in your own life. What, what was parenting being parented like for you and how, has it impacted on how you do it now?
2: Well, it's impacted very heavily. And I suppose I'll explain that. in once I explain the kind of foundation, so um, parents being parented for me was a mixed bag. My parents biologically were uh, Deirdre and Winston and my dad, Winston died when I was three of cancer. My Mom, Deirdre, my biological mom, was an alcoholic and she had been drinking to a problematic extent, but you know, not so badly before he died. And then after he died, it became a huge problem and was a problem in our lives until I was uh, seven. And then I moved in with my aunt and uncle who kind of took over. So Deirdre and Winston were like super loving parents, really affectionate. I don't unfortunately have very many memories of Winston. But, uh, you know, my biological mom, I I have a lot of memories of like, you know, I was our relationship was definitely toxic uh, because I was stepping into the parent role quite frequently at like five and six, pouring booze down the sink and walking home from pubs and all kinds of stuff like that, which isn't great, obviously. But when she was good, she was amazing. She was so loving. Like I never questioned that I was loved, which I always think is the thing that has stood to me through life that love and what I've learned about attachment theory means that I know that I had that foundation from when I was very small you know she did things like my brother got a bmx bike for christmas one year and she wrapped the bike but like every spoke like every inch of the bike was wrapped you know our halloween costumes are always made really carefully one of the girls across the road couldn't have a party one year for her birthday because her parents were having work done in the house so you know she had a party for her in our house when she had it together she was amazing which is actually the real tragedy of it all but then obviously what, what ended up happening basically was her drinking was really bad. And she'd been into treatment a couple of times and, it, you know, she hadn't managed to kick it. And um, she was getting more and more pressure to kind of, you know. Well, she was in trouble, basically, you know, everybody was hassling her about her drinking. And I think my grandparents had had tried to maybe potentially get me and my brother to move in with them instead of her. So she applied for a visa and we all moved to America. To get away from the problem, basically. And then when we got to America, things just got really bad. And, you know, we were in very dangerous situations. And eventually it was decided that it wasn't appropriate for us to live with her anymore, both by, you know, the system and by her. Uh, She did it willingly. And my aunt and uncle, who were only 25 and 26, overnight took in a five year old and a seven year old. (laughs) So, that was a very different experience of parenting because they were 25 and 26 and they'd never had kids and they hadn't had us from babies. And they did w- the best thing that they thought they could do, which was they were super, super strict and they were not very like physically affectionate. And, you know, they, we weren't really like an I love you kind of house. And that was quite a sharp contrast to what I had been experiencing before. So I think I found that quite difficult, and then unfortunately, my uh, my uncle, my adoptive father, is also an alcoholic. He's recovering, which is fantastic. But uh, you know, there was a lot of problem drinking through my kind of the rest of my childhood and then through my teens. So I never had a safe anchor really, which I think made me super independent sometimes to a problematic extent (laughs) and definitely made me think a lot about the kind of parent that I want to be. And I would say that there is really nothing accidental about the way that I parent my kids. Like I think about everything very carefully and I'm sure everybody does. Um, But I think a lot about the lasting impact, what messages I'm sending them. You know, the question I ask all the time is do they know that they're loved? And I honestly feel like if they, if they know that they're loved And if they feel happy and safe, which I didn't, I didn't really have all of those things all the time or most of the time. But if I have, if I can give them those things, then the rest of it actually isn't that important. And so I guess the things that I felt were lacking for me are now the most important things for me with my children.
1: And that, that I'm fascinated by the experience of the safety of love and the Intermittent unsafety of being the child of an addict, which is one where you are typically overly responsible, high levels yeah. of uncertainty. But the the warmth and connection that your mum had when she was, as you say, on the straight and narrow and things were going well. Yeah. There's a lovely you mentioned attachment theory and almost that the hard wiring of the relationship was done through that. And then that allowed you to kind of absorb the other bits. And the, uh, uh, you mentioned attachment theory, and I, I, when I, you were talking, I just thought about Harry Potter, and I don't know why I thought about Harry Potter, <laughs> but there's the his mother's love when she was there was the thing that sustained him. So the the, the yeah. whole message is that 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 allows you that resilience, yeah. uh, even to withstand the trauma or the upset of whatever that might yeah. be. And, and you seem to talk in those terms that connection to your mum and then flipping over to the, the adoptive parents and the strictness and the perhaps lack of physical, open, expressionable emotion. How did you manage that, Louise? Or do you remember how you coped with the, the gear change?
2: Um, I mean, I think in fairness to them, it's not that they were like cold and, you know, we didn't get hugs or anything at all, particularly when we were small kids, but you know, and, and they were really doing their best. Like everything was coming from the right place. Um, but I, I I really struggled with it. But I, I you know, with hindsight, like it's the, it, it was that feeling of connection as well, that like, you know, you just can't replace that, you know, whether it's adoptive or biological or whatever, you can't replace that connection of of mother and child, you know, if they spend the first seven years of, of life together, you know? And I guess I really missed that. And in a way, maybe I projected missing that onto my adoptive parents as well. But I think uh, I looked for attention anywhere I could get it is probably the truth. And I think really only in the last few years, I feel like, do you know what? I've actually had enough attention. <laughs> but I think for a long time, I was trying to make up for, up for the feeling of, you know, feeling like something was maybe lacking a little bit at home by getting validation elsewhere. Um, anywhere I could get it, like whether it was other people's parents or whether it was like, you know, doing well in school or doing the school play or like even, you know, playing football, even though I didn't like playing football because I my dad liked football and I was hoping that he'd, you know, like me basically more if I, if I did football. Like I just tried really hard. I was the kid who was like the, you know, perfectionist, classic child of an alcoholic behavior. And yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons probably that, you know, the, the kind of media and performance fields appealed to me, because you do get that kind of validation, I suppose, on a regular basis. And I needed that.
1: A surprisingly recurrent theme in the podcast is when we talk <laughs> about this, how people say, well, maybe that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing. But um, that idea of attention seeking, I think I always just say, if you swap over attention seeking to relationship seeking. That's what you're mm. doing, you know, yeah. in terms of whether it's through perfectionism and uber independence and ha- being on top and being the good kid, that yeah. you're kind of yeah. getting validation and recognition for that, or by proxy, acting out and being difficult, you're still seeking something. And it's, it's so interesting that a lot of what we talk about is that ch- childhood behavior is a communication of something. And it's about trying to establish the meaning behind the behavior as opposed mm. to focusing on the behavior itself. Uh, Mm. And one of the things that I would repeatedly think that I I don't think we pay enough attention to is the child who you describe like yourself, who had the burden of being good. Do you know what I mean? So being good, not because maybe you wanted to be, but because you feared rejection if you weren't. Do you know that kind of way? Mm. So there's a kind of a sense of, of feeling compelled to be good because you were afraid to be bad, if that makes sense. Yeah.
2: And um, my brother and I kind of f- fell into those stereotypes, like I was the good one and he was the bad one, which didn't serve either of us, obviously. And you know, didn't didn't serve our relationship well either, you know, being categorized in that way. And that makes a lot of sense what you're saying in terms of the two of us and the way that we've traveled along our paths, you know.
1: And so then you become the the idea of you becoming parent yourself. So you get to fulfill mm. the role of of a few contrasting templates, if that's fair to say, you know, growing up and you said that you focused heavily on the importance of feeling loved uh, because that was the kind of gold dust that you experienced growing up. And so you, you had an emphasis on that. And I think where something is short in supply, it becomes more valuable. You know, we ration the things that are, are, are important to us that maybe we feel would, we would like to have had more of, if that makes sense. Mm. The, Am I right in saying, though, that there was another variable in your life in terms of you had cancer in 2014? Is that right? Before you had children, was it? Sounds
2: about right. Yeah, it was before I had kids. (laughs) I'm terrible with dates. Six years
1: ago. Did that uh, impact on... Because I've read that you were concerned, obviously, about fertility after the treatment and everything else that went with it. Was, Was that a feature in... In terms of whether you would ever be able to have children or was that yeah. how did you come to terms with all that?
2: Yeah so it was a real flurry actually of things happened after I so I had Hodgkin's lymphoma I had six months of chemo at the start of my treatment I didn't have time to freeze eggs or anything and uh, but they did say that it could negatively impact my fertility and um, but they would give me a drug called which um, the theory is that it kind of makes your ovaries take over for the duration of the chemo and hopefully you've still got eggs at the end of it. But I remember I went to an appointment with an endocrinologist in the middle of my treatment. Like when you're when you're having cancer treatments, like you're having all kinds of appointments. And I got this letter that I had an appointment with an endocrinologist and I said to my nurse, the nurses in the, on the ward, I said, do you know why I would have this appointment? Like, I don't I don't understand. And they were like, no, but sure, just go. And I said, okay. So anyway, I went, it turned out it was an appointment that had been made for me, like pre-diagnosis. I I saw a lot of consultants on the way to my diagnosis to try and figure out what was wrong with me. So anyway, your mom, this professor consultant was like, why are you here? I was like, I don't know, (laughs) why are you? And he said, well, what's going on anyway? And he said, so did they give you decapital? And I said, yeah, they did, yeah. And he said, well, you know, there's some evidence that it works. (laughs) I was like, great, that's a solid vote of confidence. Thanks very much. So needless to say, at the end of my treatment, I decided, sure, we better go and check now and see if this decapeptal has worked and do I have eggs left? Because my husband and I were engaged. We were getting married. um, I finished my treatment in February. We got married in August. And I'd been sick for a long time before my diagnosis. So we'd lost a good year and a half of life, you know, our normal life. And we really wanted to go travel and have the crack. And the, the hope was I would go in. They'd be like, you're grand. Um, my body has been incredibly resilient thus far, so I assumed it would be fine. But in the end, uh, my test came back. The, my, the hormone levels were really low. So they said, look, you're probably not going to conceive naturally, but go away and try and then come back to us and we'll see what we can do for you. And I was like, OK, yeah, grant. But then once we started trying, I got pregnant like almost straight away. So that was amazing on the one hand. And it is amazing. And I'm still super grateful for it. But at the same time, I wasn't prepared to be pregnant right then. (laughs) You know what I mean? I had just come off the back of chemo marriage. And then also at that time, my biological mom was dying in Chicago so there was like this flurry of all these different you know if you think about the layers of all of that emotion like I'm pregnant I wanted to be pregnant of course I'm relieved that I'm pregnant but also like now I'm pregnant and then I've just come off the back of this cancer treatment I haven't processed that yet at all and now I am pregnant as my biological mother is dying and I was back and forth to Chicago a couple of times to kind of see her at that time so it was it was heavy and I didn't have a lot of time to process it all and literally the day that I felt some kick for the first time or move for the first time or whatever was the day my, my biological mom died so like you talk about the circle of life it was so stark you know I'm not particularly spiritual but it really did feel like there was a you know something was happening there I was being sent some sort of message so So that's what happened. And then, you know, when we decided that we try again for another baby, we were like, sure, we're probably not gonna get pregnant. And again, I got pregnant really quickly. So, you know, so I don't know. The science of fertility is imperfect to say the least.
1: And and when you said about, you know, your body is incredibly resilient and it would prove to be so, but emotionally, how does all that adversity how do you manage that? I'm just trying, trying to think of yeah, as you say, all those layers of being pregnant, mum very unwell, you know, the uncertainty of it all, having just been through a fairly major uh, life event uh, and mm. trying to find your way out of all of that. My guess is you were all over the shop. Is, would that be a reasonable?
2: So I am incredibly good at compartmentalizing, like to a dangerous extent. And I tend to just get on with it. Um, And that was my kind of, that was what I was doing when I got sick. You know, I had, he said to me, you know, you have cancer. I was upset for a few minutes. I cried a few times over the next couple of days, but then I was like, let's get it together. 80% chance you're gonna be cured after six months. That's what's gonna happen. Um, And I don't give myself a lot of time to feel sad or like mad or resentful or whatever. No, I mean, I do feel those things, but like in a serious, when, when it's a big serious moment, if it's too painful or too much to think about, I tend to just kind of one foot in front of the other and get on with it. So it's really only in the last few years that I've been processing everything. At the time I felt kind of fine. You know, it was obviously, it was, so, it's the stuff with my mom is still so complicated. Um, I It's gonna take me a really long time to get to a peaceful place with it you know my feelings around my relationship with her are really complicated and I feel really sad that we didn't have a chance to kind of forge new territory her as a as a grandmother and me as a mother I feel like we, we what happened w- with me and her was that we so I moved in with my parent my aunt and uncle my adoptive parents and She was in touch off and on depending obviously on how well she was doing and sometimes we'd see her loads and then sometimes we wouldn't see her at all and then for a good few years we didn't see her at all and then when I was 19 she kind of resurfaced. She was sober which was amazing. She was also uh, paraplegic. She had been assaulted and she had ended up paralyzed and you know she had been through a whole lot on the other side of it and she arrived back into my life and it was a lot for me to process and uh, I couldn't really at the time and she was in Chicago and I was here and she'd come and visit and I had all these complex feelings of like you know, really happy to see her, happy to see someone who physically resembled me, to be able to ask her questions about things that I'd never been able to ask her about, but then at the same time to be resentful and angry and annoyed that my family were all kind of praising her for having gotten her shit together when part of me was like, it's too late, you know, I had that feeling. But then the rational brain who had, you know, spent years reading about addiction or whatever is having the argument with myself of like, it's not her fault. She was sick, she couldn't, you know, she couldn't do any different than what she did. But then the, I guess the inner child or like the emotion is like, no, fuck that. Sorry, pardon my language. But like, you are allowed to be upset and angry about this. So I had all of this conflict in my feelings around her for years, for uh, for the rest of her life, unfortunately. And when it came down to it, and when she was sick and dying, I flew to Chicago because I could not be with her. And I I was worried that I wouldn't be able to, like, mind her and hold her hand in the hospital and, you know, put her lip balm on and all that stuff. But it came really naturally. And then she died. And I feel like we maybe could have had new, clean territory with my boys that wasn't tainted by the past, that we could you know, have a new thing to talk about (laughs) Uh, that didn't have anything to do with us because it always felt like we were trying to kind of build a relationship that was, that was gone. You know, we weren't mother and daughter anymore, but like we weren't auntie and niece and we weren't friends. So you're kind of trying to create a relationship out of, you know, it's worse than nothing out of trauma. And I think it would have been really great if we'd been able to have that time together. And then of course, parenting my own children has brought up all kinds of stuff for me in terms of how I was parented and how how things were for me as a kid and it's brought a kind of a grief uh, and a real sense of loss for what I didn't have you know like I'm so glad that my children have the home that they have and they're having the life that they're having but like I do have moments where I'm like it is so sad that I didn't get to have that. And um, so it's, it's all really layered and complicated. And I think it's going to take me years to figure it out, <laughs> maybe forever.
1: <laughs> I, th- I think what you, what you describe is two of the most difficult things to manage. One is ambivalence, where you have two competing emotions at the same time. Uh, one of love, one of resentment, one of hope, one of bitterness. And to try and come down on one side when you're ambivalent is really difficult because mm. maybe it's impossible. Maybe ambivalence is where it needs to be as opposed to trying to find some sort of destination of resolving something. Maybe it has to remain a little bit gray and a little bit unresolved, but then the second one is regret. And I think mm. a second to shame regret is probably the, the, the worst emotion to try and manage because it's something that is very difficult to undo or to redo or uh, do over of some description. And so there's something about coming to terms with regret as well. Um, And many times we try and compensate by maybe over-investing in our own parenting role or, you know, trying to say, well, I'm going to be absolutely perfect or I'm going to, in some form of reparation to try and Mm -hmm. make up for it. But the ambivalence of parenting is difficult because yes and we the joy of it is wonderful but the anger and the sacrifice of it is real too and oh, so yeah. the idea of trying to hold it together as am I a good parent or a bad parent uh, when in actual fact we are all both is really challenging but it just brings it all to life doesn't it in terms of the when you're in the role that you may have been critical of it it holds up a mirror that sometimes is uncomfortable but also mm-hmm. aspirational and, and I, I can just imagine it's a cocktail of emotion when you have an ambivalent relationship with your own parents anyway and, and one of the other contributors we talked about uh, was Mairead Ronan she talked about her mum died just before she was born or her first was born and so yeah. trying to be a mother without a motherly template in your life and how discombobulating that was that you don't have almost a, a, an active reference point to kind of yeah. bounce things off and you're kind of feel very alone in that role uh, yeah. in that way so given that all of that was in the mix what is parenting what's the parenting challenges or what are the struggles or or how is it how is it for you
2: so I found the first year of being a parent incredibly difficult I, w- I think I was shocked like I think I was in shock I ha- I wasn't No one can prepare you for it. And I know that's a cliche, but it is the truth. Um, And I couldn't, I couldn't seem to get over the sacrifice. I found it really hard to accept that I wasn't going to be able to live my life the way that I had previously. And I think I also was resentful of the fact that I'd lost this big chunk of, you know, time that I should have been able to, you know, be on the RAS or whatever, um, because I was sick. So it was a tough year you know it was a really tough year Um, and I remember kind of coming out of it and like you know I hate to say this but I think it's really important that we acknowledge these things but I remember going to bed every night and like I wouldn't I wouldn't look in on Sam I, I was just like I just can't even if he wakes up I just can't even deal with him and at some stage it changed from that to I couldn't go to sleep without looking in on him and I still look in on him every night and I remember feeling okay I'm okay I'm I'm there you know I'm this is I've come out of whatever the worst of that was, you know, whether it was postnatal depression or whatever it was, you know, I'm okay now. And my experience with my second baby was like completely different. I, I loved every bit of it. I loved him being a newborn. I loved the time when he was glued to me. I didn't feel any resentment whatsoever. My life had changed already, you know, so, and I had accepted it. Um, but it was that life change. It wasn't Sam. It wasn't, you know, it was the change of life that had that I found it very hard to come to terms with, you know, and it's been my God, it has been a roller coaster. Like, you know, Sam is. Uh, <laughs> oh, how would you describe him? Like he's a he's a real personality, but like he he's a very stubborn and headstrong little guy you know I think
1: spirited is the the, the euphemism
2: yeah (laughs) I've heard that before he is very spirited Um, and at times you know it was really tough with him but it's such a joy now to see who he is and you know he's really I'm really proud of him you know he's he's come such a long way and I'm proud that we've kind of gotten through it and now I think Ted is getting a much easier rise right, excuse me, as a result, because I just find everything easier now the second time because like, okay, so at the moment, Ted's favorite thing to do is to watch music videos on TV. He has no interest in any other TV, but he loves music videos. And he'll just, he says, "song," which it means song. And that means he wants to, yeah. But he will only wa- want to watch like 10 seconds. And then he's like, no, and and he'll do that. He would do that. You, If you let him, he would do that for a full hour and he wouldn't be happy with anything, but he would be happy with the process. And like, it's driving my husband nuts. <laughs> but I'm just like, it's going to pass. You know, I know that whatever the the worry is or the stress or the, you know, the frustration or whether it's that, you know, they won't sit still to have their nappy changed or if went through a really bad phase of slapping us in the face, which was just really hard to stomach. I know now that whatever it is, you know, 99% of the time it's going to pass and you'll move on to something else. So I just don't get stressed in those, I don't get bogged down in those things anymore. Whereas the first time around I really did. So I think I've just, you know, it's definitely mellowed me out in lots of ways. I have so much more patience than I ever had. And, and yeah, it's been a real roller coaster, but I'm so happy now with my two guys. And I, I really feel so lucky that I have the two of them, you know, their relationship together is so beautiful to watch now. And, you know, I'm really glad that my body was able to, you know, produce a brother for sam because i think that's a really special thing and you know it would have been fine if we didn't but like i feel very lucky so yeah it's been all over the shop but it's good right now
1: (laughs) and i think you you hit on a really important point i mean as you were talking about the the kind of build up to your first pregnancy the Mm -hmm. the mental health practitioner in my head was just going to the tick list for postnatal depression every risk factor was there but again that ambivalence around wanting to have see him all the time and then the sacrifice and and we don't talk enough about the sacrifice and i think there is this narrative where you're lucky to have them and yeah you know smile and get on with it and uh i I think there's of course there's an element of that but having a child is utterly life-changing from the point of view of and it might be you know i used to play five aside three nights a week when he was born i didn't and you know and people say oh you'll never sleep again you know the, the sleep thing becomes the currency of it but it's almost like the freedom to lie in is never there yeah. you know yeah. I, I had a lion in 2010 and i still remember <laughs> it <laughs> but from the point of view everything changing and i do think that first child the, there's a, a phase called primary maternal preoccupation for the first 6 months where we're uh, we're psychotically involved in the child's well-being and we're supposed to be it's part of the the whole process mm-hmm. and then they individuate so you have to step back and it's the first time you can take a phone call or the first time you leave them for a half an hour or the first time yeah. and and each of that that individuation creates the the capacity for the child to be individual and to to pick yeah. their own way and and you're this this the struggles with your eldest lad with the anger and the tantrums and everything else is him trying to find his own way. But then you're kind of saying, I can see now he's kind of come out of that. Teenager thing. He's (laughs) into that space now where he's now his own. So he's looking to the outside world to people Mm. to play with him. So he's now his own person and the spirited child, although high maintenance, of course they are. And they take a lot of energy, uh, there, there's something wonderful about a child who has their voice. And I think the comparison to maybe your own experience of that being the good kid all the time mm. and feeling pressured to do that, it's almost, I don't want to say healthier, but there's something about the spirited child who's so open. And I'm just oh, telling yeah. you, it, they externalize her. Is, yeah. At least you're, you can manage that. You can mm. deal with it and it's the origin. But I, I laugh at your little guy with the, the music videos. Am I, I I'm right in saying you're... You, you're fairly an anorex when it comes to music yourself. And I think oh, Taylor I mean to Smith
2: music, people. yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, the idea that, that, you know, wanting to change the channel every 10 seconds, it might be just about having someone there to do that. Do you know what I yeah. mean? That's visibility. And so that's the fun. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, I always laugh at people saying, you know, the story time, you know, when we're reading the same story for the 10th time in a <laughs> row, the child is not interested in the story time. Story time yeah. is about connection about you yeah. being there and 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 me captivating you for seven yeah. minutes i've heard the night before christmas 27 times in june That's not it's not it's not the story that's of interest It's the connection and so yeah. i think sometimes of it that they're flipping over the a, the music videos every 10 seconds is is probably about connection as well but uh, is there any questions that you'd have around parenting is there anything that kind of thinking about your two lads and thinking what what will this Presented me. (laughs) Yes, uh,
2: definitely. (laughs) I think the thing that I, my biggest question is about, and I don't even like using this word, but discipline. You know, I don't want to be, uh, you know, I don't particularly like the idea of timeouts and you know there's so much conflicting stuff on the internet about like what's right and what's wrong in terms of discipline like I know obviously that if Sam is doing something it's not really what's Ted so much yet but if Sam is doing something that's that's wrong or like if he's ignoring us or you know not doing what he knows he should be doing there have to be consequences but I'm really struggling with what those consequences should be or you know I know consistency is key and I can't seem to be consistent so what would be your advice on that front?
1: I think that's a brilliant question, because I think there is a lot of confusing narrative out there. Right. And I I don't come from the school of thought where everything has to be a neutral voice and calm, mm. and non-reactive. And, you know, if you go in and find your child writing on the wall with the crayon on your newly painted wall to go, darling, here's some paper, don't do that. I think it, when you go, what? Yeah, that's a very understandable reaction. And I believe yeah. children need to see our yeah. emotional reactions. I, I yeah. believe it develops an emotional intelligence, obviously within reason, but the it's consequence, not, not discipline. So there's yeah. a consequence to something. So it is, it's the school of life that I can't do this and expect to get away with it. I can't demand treats. And by creating more of a fuss it means i get rewarded for it so the consistency is in your approach but i would always say that the it's intentionality is what we need to we are defined by our choices not our actions so if the child is two and they their intentionality is not developed so they're not going to know that striking their brother across the head is going to have the consequences of that whereas if they're 12 and they do it there is they're at an age of reason where intentionality is much more clear. So yeah. I would see the consequences of intentionality is I oftentimes, and I have to catch myself doing it. I sometimes give out to my children for an accident know, they drop something and,
0: they're like,
1: and I'm going, I have to say, they didn't mean to do that. They didn't set out to knock over my lamp with that football. You know They shouldn't have been playing football. Outside, but yeah. and, and so your overreaction to accidents or non-intentionality is something to keep it tuned to that we don't yeah. do but where intentionality is there, we have there has to be consequences to it. Mm. We can't allow children to get a belief that misbehavior works yeah. or acting out works. or yeah. And so it's all about trying to coach the child to manage rather than disciplining or sanctioning them for not managing. You know mm-hmm. I mean? So when something happens and, and they have a consequence, whether it is an, you know, the naughty step or timeouts or any of those sorts of things, they're they're not so much they're not the problem. It's the our use of it is the problem. Like mm. two and a half minutes to a two-year-old is an eight, an, an eternity of time. But we put them on the step for half an hour. Far too much. Be, yeah. so, and 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 people would say, oh, star charts don't work. The star chart does work. It's how you do it. You know, if you say, My child, you know wets the bed and you know i'll give them a magazine if they can stay dry for six nights you're going the child has never stayed dry for one night they're never going to be able to do six so for me it's always about are they unwilling or unable yeah and if they're unable they need an arm around the shoulder and the comfort and the support if they're unwilling they may need supportive direction which is I want you to move from a position of unwillingness to willingness. Do you know what I mean? and, yeah. I, and it is is—it is about morality. It's about developing a social conscience. It's about developing an awareness of other people. It's about uh, a theory of mind that when I do that to you, that hurts you. And so my actions have an impact on you. But developmentally, a child won't be able to understand that until they're about seven. So your two are very much going to be behavioral management. It's going to be a token economy. So it's all rewards for good behavior. And, you know, but... What we do know, and it's interesting, it comes up all the time, to incentivize some somebody, fear doesn't work. Fear gets yeah. compliance. So if I'm afraid, I'll do what I'm supposed to do, but I won't necessarily understand why I have to do it. Mm-hmm. Incentive is what complies us to do it willingly. So from the mm-hmm. point of view of if you do that, I, so what we have to do, and I say it all the time, is catch our children being good. Yeah. So when your two are in the room and they're watching something together, or if your eldest lad helps him out or gives him a toy to share. That's the moment to be in on top of them and saying, yeah. loving this, this is how yeah. we want it. And rather than what we tend to do as parents is we leave them alone when they're quiet and we empty the dishwasher and we'll get that thing done. And then they have a row and then we're in, or they knock over the yeah. lamp and we're in. And so, so the bad
2: behavior gets the attention.
1: It's, and, and remember your children live in an attention economy. Yeah. So when the arrival of a second sibling comes, my attention economy is halved you know, Mm. when dad's not here, you're my attention economy. So it's, we have to be sure that we're giving the attention to the right area, not the wrong area. And notoriously, because life is busy, we attend to misbehavior far more than we attend to good behavior. And again, that so I I would be much more in the incentives camp rather than the consequence camp. But I don't believe in the never raise your voice, never get upset. Yeah. Uh, I think children maybe need to see that, to be honest.
2: Okay, well, that's heartening because I'm good at incentives. I'm good at praise. And I w- sometimes worry I might overdo the praise. <laughs> but I'm good <laughs> at praise and I'm good at incentives, but it's the consequences. So what do you think are good consequences for a four-year-old then?
1: I mean, I think it, it, in terms of the... It has to be short-term. It has to be yeah. immediate and it has yeah. to be related to it. So creating a consequence at the weekend for something they do on Wednesday, they won't have the yeah. cognitive capacity to connect that. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's tokenistic. It shouldn't, and it doesn't have to have real life impact on their lives. Yeah. It's about it's about them recognizing your disgruntlement at what they have done and, uh, and maybe just disapproval. That yeah. wasn't the right way to manage that situation. So it doesn't have to be the, the consequence doesn't determine the level of uh insight you know so yeah. whether i sit on the on the step for 20 minutes versus st- two and a half minutes it doesn't make my awareness of what i did any. you know the, the crime doesn't have to match the, match the time if that makes sense yeah but but it is about doing it immediately doing it clearly and doing it very short but repairing it so when yeah. and, and and it is about you know sending you to the third to your room to think about what you've done do you know what yeah. i mean People tend to not go in the room and think about what they've done. They think about how much they hate you for putting the consequences yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's the return after is yeah. the most important. That's the conversation where learning takes place, not yeah. in the room. It's yeah. the reuniting them back where you yeah. say, well, what did you do wrong there? What are we going to do next time?
2: I yeah. don't like
1: being across with you and I don't want to be across with you. So let's try yeah. the, the, the reunitions. That's where the effort is, not in the punishment. If that
2: yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It does, yeah, it makes total sense. Okay, well, we're not doing so bad then. I don't feel like... Uh, the one thing, I
1: would say, uh, one thing I would say is it, it, the, when you overdo the praise piece, just one
2: yeah, <laughs> a word of,
1: of, of, of alertness to that. Children who are... We, we, we kind of have come into a place where we have, we're very much encouraged to, t- to tell our children that they're special, and they are. They are special to us, right? Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are special to everyone else from that point yeah. of view. And so sometimes what we can do is in our praise and our award, we overham the external variable. We love you because you're bright, because you're clever, because you're a good sportsman, because you're a hurler and all the, the, the tasks that they're able to do, which makes them very confident children. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean that their self-esteem and self-worth and self-belief is that good because sometimes being special is pressure because I yeah. have to keep being special. And the idea of being able to see the limitations of my ability also puts a limitation on my expectation of myself. Do you know what I mean? To say, it's actually mm-hmm. okay not to be good at that. It's okay to just do that for the crack and enjoy it. It's okay to not be the best, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the idea that, But by definition, if everyone is special, nobody is special. Sure. So we have to be very careful around that. But encouraging the internal variable is way more, because society, and and you've spoken about this a lot, is that we we focus very much on the external variable. So body image, weight, you know. And what I would say is our society is becoming tinderized from the point of view of your profile picture, your funny one line. That decides whether you get swiped left or right. So children are very much growing up in a world where performance is valued. And it is. Mm. So we have to say that there's an internal variable behind that. How kind are you? How meaningful are you? How genuine are you? So that inner beauty, if you want to use that word, and, and you speak so brilliantly about this, that we have to bring that into our parenting as well, that we really value the internal variable almost way more than the external one because yeah. society will determine the external variables, the most important thing. So fill yeah. your life full of sand, you know? Yeah.
2: So um, you have to try and balance that.
1: You have to try balance that. And yeah. if you're talking about resilience and I, I, running out a time, so I'll just end on this, mm-hmm. your, your resilience of when you, when you described coming through your life through all of that adversity and, and, and thank you very much for that honest uh, account of your story. There's something about your own relationship with yourself being really strong through all of that and i'm guessing that went through periods of being better than others of course it did but there was something about that and it's it's visual in your work and in your narratives and and in the topics of your book where that relationship with yourself is so core that if you don't have a good relationship with yourself it doesn't matter you know what everyone else thinks and for me that seems to be a real focus of robustness and a pillar that has helped ground you in all of that yeah. Now we all have that tendency to throw something up on the shelf and I'll do it later and you talked about compartmentalizing you know in some ways as and yes that's a very good short-term coping strategy but sometimes that shelf just comes down yeah. when you love too much <laughs> stuff on it yeah, uh, and there's, sure. a, so there's a cost of that but the that relationship with yourself, if you parent with that in mind, it's not so much. Yes, of course, it is that we know that we're loved and we know that we're cared for. But if your children can decide and make good decisions around what is important. Yeah. So my my value system, my core beliefs, my social awareness, my empathy, all of these things that just makes them resilience because they won't sweat the small stuff yeah. if they value the big stuff. Yeah. But unfortunately, as we parent in a contemporary world, a lot of the small stuff gets a lot of value. And they're yeah. told everywhere to value the small stuff, you know, how you look, mm-hmm. what labels you wear, how many followers you have, all that sort of stuff. So the counter narrative has to come from the parent,
2: which is yeah. saying,
1: I'm not going to, as parents, sometimes we fall into that trap of valuing the external variable too much as well. You mm-hmm. know, I love my child cause she's bright. I love her, him because he's sporty. I love him because he, rather than focusing, and I, I would love to see our systems change where, in school, there's rewards for the kid who came through adversity, rather than the brightest kid, or mm-hmm. the, a medal for kindness and outreach, rather than the fastest runner. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. we need to value effort over outcome. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. if we keep that in mind through the parenting piece, and that comes into the kind of disciplining and consequence. You know. Yeah. Reward effort, minimize yeah. outcome. Um, they will know their strengths, but they will also know their limitations. And I think from that point of view, by by default, you become resilient. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, right. But listen, Louise, thank you so much for that. That was a really interesting chat. That time flew. I can't believe that's <laughs> gone already. Um, oh, I can talk. <laughs> <laughs> um But uh, so many things that you spoke about there have hit so many points for me. Just listening back, uh, the the theme of ambivalence and uncertainty and regret and staying strong to things. It's just. Uh, it's a fantastic uh, story. Uh, I know you've had to live through it. It probably wasn't just fantastic for you all the time, but it really is a, a, an overused words kind of inspirational in that way to see how you've managed to come through all that. So listen, thank you so much for giving thank us you. the time. And if anyone has any questions around anything that Louise and I have talked about, please get in touch with the shows. You know, you can get uh, in touch with us with asking for a parent at gmail.com or get us on the Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook pages. But uh For now, Louise McSharry, thank you ever so much. Thank you. And to everyone at home, uh, we'll see you next week. But in the meantime, take care, stay safe, and bye for now.
0: That was the wonderful Louise McSharry there, and a really interesting conversation. That conversation flew. I mean, there were so many things that we touched on and talked about uh, around the importance of her own parenting template growing up with the uncertainty of addiction and having to kind of become, I think, older, younger, maybe was part of the issues that she described, but also her journey towards recovering from her cancer diagnosis and then becoming a mom herself. It really was a powerful story and one that uh, I really got an awful lot from. And, uh, you know, the importance around catching children being good and, you know, making sure they know that they're loved and cared for and the importance of all of those things really highlighted some of the core elements of parenting and some of the things that we oftentimes have to remind ourselves of so a very special thanks to Louise McSherry for her insights honesty and time and I hope you all enjoyed listening to her story as much as I did so until next time take care stay safe and bye for now